Well, good morning again. How bad is it? How bad is it? That's a line that is often repeated in the examination room. A patient asking the doctor, Doc, how bad is it? It's a line that perhaps would be well asked, a question that would be well asked of humanity in general. How bad is it? How bad is it? Uh, Isaac Watts wrote the classic hymn, we, we call it today, Joy to the World, uh, 1719. Believe it or not, that was not originally penned as a Christmas carol. That's how we think of it today. Uh, but it was really originally part of a collection of paraphrases of Psalms. And uh, that's what Watts was doing there. And this one in particular was a paraphrase of Psalm 98. There's a, uh, a line in there. Uh, it's actually, I, I think it's there in your quotes and there in your bulletin if you want to read it with me. It's from the third stanza, the third stanza of that beautiful old hymn, Joy to the World, the third stanza. And it reads like this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Well, here's a question for you. How far is the curse found? If you've been paying attention to the book of Judges in this series thus far, it would seem it's found pretty far and pretty deep. So we're pressing on uh, this morning in this series. And as, you've, as Will and I have been saying, tag-teaming through the course of this, We've been talking about the cycle that you see through the book of Judges, so it'd be repetitive, redundant for me to say again and again and again, but I'll just say it again and again and again, the, the cycle. That cycle being the, the people give themselves to false worship, to false hopes, to false aims and, and desires and paths for life, idols, idolatry would be the, the terminology for that. Therein, God, in really in a, you might say, in a severe mercy, gives them over to that. They suffer from that. Invading armies, nations come in. They are oppressed. They cry out. He hears them. He sends a deliverer, a judge. That man or woman then works deliverance for the people. They are relieved. Usually there's a time of peace, some period of therein, and then it picks back up again. The cycle, that's the cycle. But one of the things we've been saying through the course of this, this study is it's not just a cycle like this, it's a spiral like this, going down, down and down and down. It's getting worse and worse and worse as we keep reading through the book. And we're about to hit a juncture right now where it, that really gets your attention. If you haven't seen the worsening effect through the, the course of these years, you're really going to see it in what we're about to move into today. So... Uh, judges, we're in ju starting in chapter 11, and if you're following along in the Bibles there in the back of your seats, it's page 211 is where we're starting. So this is in the Old Testament. It's after the book of Joshua. It's before the book of Ruth. Um, the book of Judges, we're starting in verse 11. Historically speaking, just in case you, you need a, a way to bookmark that, get a sense of context, this is between the time of Moses and the conquest, the settlement, the establishment of the people, the nation of Israel, is between that time and the time of David, 
well, I guess you could say Saul, the beginning of the monarchy, the period of the kings there in Israel and later in Judah in Israel. So that's where we are. Book of Judges. Chapter 11 is where we're starting. Chapter 11, chapter, uh, verse 1, reading on through chapter 12, verse 7. I, I know it's long. Let me give you just a quick uh, series of bookmarks, you might say, as you're going. Kind of get a, a pace, a sense of where we're going over the next few minutes. So the first few verses, verses 1 through 3, is like an introduction. Who is this guy? Who's Jephthah? Then you pick up verses 4 through 28, and that's this thing between him and the Ammonites, a tribe of people on the east side of the Jordan River, okay? And there's this, well, they want to invade, they're upset with the Israelites, and Jephthah, there's a conversation, I guess you could take, say, takes place there. Uh, in the course of that, there is a battle, not surprisingly, because the conversation goes sideways, it doesn't go the way that Jephthah had hoped. Uh, Jephthah makes this vow. We'll get into that as, as we go, uh, starting in verse 28 or 29. And that carries you through the end of the chapter, the making and the keeping of this vow. What on earth is going on there? And then you pick up in chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. That's where we're going to end. And that's um, sort of the sequel to all of that and the end of Jephthah's reign and rule and work as a judge. Okay, so here we go. Uh, Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was a son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made a war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all the, his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and to the Jordan, now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. 
But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers of, to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aurora and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. And the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Manit, twenty cities, as far as abel Kiramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, 
you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Well, I think we need to pray. So would you join me? Lord, this is a mess. Could it have been worse? You called your people to be a city on a hill, to be a living testimony to the true and living God, the one who had brought them out of Egypt and showered them with blessings and promises. And yet, in short time, they proved to be at least as bad. We, we, our spiritual ancestors, proved to be at least as bad as the people around them. Lord, would you help us to see, help us to see ourselves in this, to see you in this as the mighty one who is great yet still to save, great in power and love and mercy to save, even still. Would you encourage our hearts? Would you embolden our hearts? Would you give comfort and conviction wherever and however it is needed? May we not be the same as when we walked in this place. We pray in your name. Amen. I do realize that I have mentioned the name C.S. Lewis a few times, especially just in the last few weeks. And I will not apologize for that. I will just simply offer an explanation, and that is, of course, because we are in the midst of this long study in Inklings Beyond, this group that we've been talking about over the last several weeks, and we're immersed in the Chronicles of Narnia. So I've been immersed in the land of Narnia. And so Lewis just keeps coming to my mind. And not just Narnia, but a lot of his other writings as well. Not just the fiction, but the nonfiction. Not just the lighter stuff, but some of the heavier stuff. And this quote from Mere Christianity came to my mind this past week. I want to share it with you. There are two ways in which the human machine goes wrong. One is when human individuals drift apart from one another or else collide with one another and do one another damage by cheating or bullying. The other is when things go wrong inside the individual, when the different parts of him, his different faculties and desires and so on, either drift apart or interfere with one another. You can get the idea plain if you think of us as a fleet of ships sailing in formation. The voyage will be a success only in the first place if the ships do not collide and get in one, in one another's way 
And secondly, if each ship is seaworthy and has her engines in good order. As a matter of fact, you cannot have either of these two things without the other. If the ship, ships keep on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears are out of order, they will not be able to avoid the collisions. And Lewis goes on in, from that point in the, in the chapter to talk about the need to be on the same chart, the same navigational map, or using another fi figure, uh, the same sheet of music. But I want to focus in on the ships, if, if I may, the ships sailing in formation, trying to get to one place together as, as, as one. They become, in this analogy, less seaworthy, of course, because they keep colliding with one another, right? Why do they keep colliding with one another? They keep colliding with one another because of the broken steering mechanisms within the ship. So they're in all these collisions. Or putting it in another way, um, what's happening on the outside is because of what's happening on the inside. Or you could put it this way. What's going on? What, what is amiss between us is because of what's amiss within us. You see that? What's amiss between us is because of what's amiss within us. And that's a pretty clear point in what we see with what we just read in Judges 11 and 12. And in particular, this account of, you know, with Jephthah and the book of whole, there's a whole of Judges, but with Jephthah in particular. It would seem that what the author, what the narrator is trying to convey to us here is that we are deeply broken. We are deeply broken as a, as a humanity, the human race, and as individuals. We are deeply broken and in need of the Lord's repair. Deeply broken and in need of the Lord's repair. How do we see that brokenness in this passage? Let me suggest three ways. You've got the outline. This is where we're going. Three, three aspects of the brokenness that, that show, that prove, that point us towards the need of the Lord's repair. The first would be the snare of materialism. The snare of materialism. The second is the horror of syncretism. I'll explain as we go. So the snare of materialism, the horror of syncretism, and then the madness of tribalism, okay? Each one of these are manifestations of a profound brokenness, demonstrating, showing us of our need of the Lord's repair. So first, the snare of materialism. I'm not going to, this is a long text, right? Y'all hung in there really well. So I'm not going to be rereading much of this, but I do want to read just little snippets here to remind or refresh us as, as we go. So the snare of materialism, this is what you see in the very beginning, in the, in the introduction that we, we have to Jephthah and his, his family, his, his family, what happens there. So verses one to three, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with 
him. So Jephthah's described from the get-go as a mighty warrior, right? Yes. Likely, it's implied, he's the firstborn son there in the family, right? However, he's also illegitimate because he is the offspring, he is the son of a prostitute. Okay, so this is, at the very least, you'd have to say, a dysfunctional family. And in the course of this interplay, this chemistry, this history, Jephthah is driven into exile. He's driven out. His half-brothers want nothing to do with him. And therein, he finds himself spending years, we don't know exactly how much time, but some number of, some number of years with the ESV describes them as worthless fellows. Now, other ways that you could translate that and understand this would be uh, a gang of robbers, a band of misfits, mercenaries is a pretty good way to take this. That is to say, fighters, soldiers for hire. That's who Jephthah's hanging out with. This is a time period out in the land of Tob where he is becoming hardened and prepared for what is to come at the same time. It's, it's a mess. Well, so is the book of Judges, right? So is this man. So, but, but why, so that's the dissolution of this family. What, what's driving that? Why is, what's happening here? What's happening here, what's driving that is the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches leads to the dissolution of this family. It's not from shame that his half-brothers drive him into exile. It's not that they're embarrassed. It's not that they're humiliated about his family heritage. That's not what the text really is saying. It's about, his, it's about the inheritance. The whole business about his family, his, his, uh, his lineage, that's a smokescreen. The real thing that they're concerned about is the money. They want his share. And say they want to do what they can to cut him out of his share so that they can have just a little bit more. Does this not feel contemporary? This is really timely. Some of us can really identify with this in some of our family history and some of the things that have happened in our own, our own heritage. Such as the brokenness, the, the, the snare of materialism and its destructive effects and its power over our lives. Remember King Midas? King Midas, that old ancient Greek myth of this guy who had the ability to turn to gold anything that he touched, which kind of sounds good until you realize you can't touch anything without it doing that. In fact, I think it was Nathaniel Hawthorne, 19th century, kind of created a spin on, on the tale in which um, Midas has this daughter and he wants to comfort his daughter and he reaches out to touch his daughter and turns her into gold. At which point now this thing, this gift that he had wanted, this ability, is now a curse. And he wants to be freed from it. Well, that's, like, that's the power. That's the, 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 the deceitfulness, the snare of wealth, materialism, living for money and acquisition. Could we fall prey to this? Is it possible that you and I could fall prey to this as the people of Jephthah's day, his, his family, his half-brothers did? Absolutely. We see warnings again and again and again and again through the scriptures to be wary of the love of money. The love of, of money. Think with me just for a minute. What money, wealth, and material possessions are. They are different things to every one of us. It's not, it's not so simple just to say, don't love money. It's don't love the thing behind the money. So you see, some of us, 
are chasing after money, wealth, possessions because of the feeling of security and control we believe it will bring to our lives. That's why we're chasing after it. Others of us, that has nothing to do with it, are chasing after money and wealth and possessions because of the comfort and ease we believe it will bring to our lives. That's why we're chasing after it. Others of us, as maybe neither of those, it might be, no, it's actually because I want status and I want approval in ways that I've never had before. And I believe that power, wealth, and possessions will bring it. So you see, it could be completely different things to each one of us. The question is, which of those are we most vulnerable to? Which of those three deeper idols beneath the money, wealth, and possessions might we be vulnerable to? And are we willing to acknowledge that and to believe that perhaps that's a manifestation of our own brokenness and showing us our need of the Lord's repair? The deceitfulness, the snare of materialism. Let's push on to the second point. The horror of syncretism. That's a fan-dancy word. Uh, it, it basically means the blending, the meshing, the pressing together of different faiths, religions, philosophies, worldviews, bringing them together, okay, uh, as you see fit. That's a simpler way to put it. This a syncretism. We see this um, in the vow that Jephthah makes and keeps there in verses 29 through 40. Now, this is a little overly simplistic, but I'll, uh, I'll say it with a little bit of a, a qualification that really the rest of chapter uh, 11 is that whole thing about uh, the history lesson that Jephthah gives us, where he actually gives the king of Ammon, about Israel's history and trying to build his case, make this argument, the historical argument he makes, the theological argument he makes, the um, just uh, uh, chronological argument that he makes. I mean, he's really hitting the guy for, in different ways. But all of that long, yeah, I know, long as it was, is really ultimately to serve as the context, the setting for the making and taking of this vow. That's the focus, actually, of chapter 11. So what are we seeing here? What are we seeing here? A terrible series of events, an absolutely terrible series of events. Events hard and nearly impossible for us to get our minds around. You're not going to find this in any children's Bible. No illustrations, please, of this passage. Jephthah makes this vow. What's going on here? He's zealous to win the battle. He wants to do everything he can to win this battle against the Ammonites. So he recruits his soldiers, yes, and he makes this vow. He makes this promise, a conditional promise to God. You see it there in verses 30 and 31, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, um, you got to understand there's a few critical things to keep in mind here. The narrator is not endorsing any of this. He is just reporting it. He's just passing it on, okay? Not endorsing it, not commending it at, at all. 
Um, that's certainly one thing worth noting. Another thing is, is something, the, the vagary, the, uh, yeah, I guess I'll say vagary, is the, the Hebrew is a little unclear. It could go either way, when you, and some of you may have footnotes even in your English Bibles when it says, whatever comes out the door to meet me, it could easily be translated just as clearly, whoever. You can go either way with, with the word. So the question is the context, whatever or whoever, but when you, when, you keep, when you read the whole verse and it's whatever or whoever comes out to meet me when I come home from this battle, to, to, to meet in that way, when you can think about what's involved there, implies rationality. It implies intelligence. It implies forethought and planning. It implies a person. It implies a person coming out to meet him. So Jephthah makes this vow, and the vow is at the very least allowing for, if not explicitly focused on, human sacrifice. Let's be clear. Jephthah kills his daughter. Jephthah kills his daughter. Eleven of the thirteen scholars' commentaries that I consulted this past week, that's exactly what they said. Eleven of the thirteen. Literally, it, it says here uh, in uh, the, the, what verse is that? Um, verse 39, he did to her his vow, which he vowed. He did to her his vow, which he vowed. Now, I know a lot of, there are some, two of the 13 that I looked at, and I know some of us, and maybe you've heard others, others say other things, we would like to soften this and believe that perhaps what he did was not burn her, sacrifice her on an altar, but rather uh, consecrate her to religious service. I don't have the time to get into that, but there, the arguments are pretty strong against that. Contextually, historically, all of it. The arguments just don't work really very well for that. This is the, we just need to go here with the plain reading of the text, as ugly and horrible as it is, okay? This is a terrible series of events brought forward, why? How could this have happened? A terrible series of events kicked into motion by a twisted matrix of beliefs. A terrible series of events kicked into gear uh, moved along, motivated by a twisted matrix of beliefs. So pagan influences on Jephthah. I said earlier, he's a mess. Remember the years that he spent in Tob? Tob is not the land of Israel. This is outside of the promised land. This is um, the, a Moabite area. So for all of his understanding of Israelite history, at the same time, it's pretty clear he had adopted aspects of Moabite religion. So even as he is worshiping the Lord, he is worshiping Moloch. Moloch, the one who calls for child sacrifice, along with the Lord, who calls for an ethic 
of the preciousness of life. They don't, I know, they don't work together, do they? Well, that's Jephthah. That's the mess that we see here. That's the syncretism that we're talking about here. And this is, I'm not saying syncretism always takes you to human sacrifice. That's not my point. But my point is it can, it has. That's how untenable, how unstable, how horrible the mixing of worship of the true and living God and any lesser gods can be. Uh, the pagan influence, but it's, it's worth noting that some, some uh, writers I was reading this past week wisely pointed this out as well. And I think they're, they're right in saying it. it's not just the pagan influences that we see here in Jep operating in Jephthah's life. It's also just common unbelief. It's true. Every single, I know none of one of us here worships Moloch and is hung out in Moab. I get that, but all of us suffer from this common unbelief. We've, we've suffered, every one of us have suffered from this since the Garden of Eden. That is to say, believing that God is good. Believing that God can be trusted. Believing that we can hear his promises and live and act out of them. We struggle with believing in fact that he's good. This is why Jephthah makes the vow. This is what's driving this conditional vow. He's trying to buy God off. He's trying to curry favor. He's trying to impress it. That's what the vows and the sacrifices entailed with the pagan gods. You give up a lot and you're trying to impress the one that you're sacrificing to. Buy them off. Curry their favor. Earn something. So now they owe you. Jephthah has no understanding of a God of grace, of a God of mercy, of a God who operates out of unmerited favor. That's us. Monday through Sunday, 24-7, that's us struggling to believe that God is that good. And in fact, he can be trusted. That's the aspect of the brokenness we see here, the, the, the dangers of the syncretism. And I just, this is, again, some questions worth asking here at this point. Could, how, how could we fall prey to this? How could we fall prey to the blending, the syncretism, the worship of the true and living God with all these lesser gods. Well, I mentioned money. That's certainly money and wealth and, 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 and possessions. That's certainly one. I was in the last point. But what about the other gods of our day, of our culture? Money, sex, and power. In what ways could be, we be falling prey to that? But let me push a little further. This one's usually not mentioned, but it ought to be. That is, in our culture, in the West, for centuries... Freedom, independence, my rights, self-dependence, self-determination. That's an idol. At least it's become one in our time. In what ways have we fallen prey to that God and the syncretism of worshiping that and him? Or, to push it a little further, what about the struggles that we have with believing that he's good? I mean, we, we have to think in these terms because who we believe God to be, we will live out of that. Everything of our lives is based in who we believe him to be. Everything you do, everything you did last week was based out of who you believe God to be. It's, it's, it's that simple. 
Everything you will do this week is based out of who you believe God to be. Who then do you believe him to be? Think with me about your, the disappointments that your hearts carry this morning. The discouragement in your heart this morning. Now let's follow that trail for a moment. It's connected to your expectations. You thought it was supposed to go like this. And it didn't. And somewhere down in there is the belief not just that it should have gone like that, but because of how you served God, about how you, what you did and didn't do in his name, lived well or at least better than the person next to you, you deserved this. You deserved this thing. Therein you expected it, then you didn't get it, and now you're disappointed. But see, here's the thing. God doesn't work like that. Of, of a God of merit and deserving and reward in that sense. You see how we can fall prey to these things and how desperately we need the Lord's repair. But let's push on to the third point. Um, not just the uh, snare of materialism and the horror of syncretism, but the madness of tribalism. The madness of tribalism. This is literally tribalism. These are tribes. Tribes within the people of Israel who are fighting. So this is not metaphorical tribalism. Well, it is going to be that here in a minute. But it, literally, that's what it is, it, 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 what we see here in chapter 12. Civil war breaks out between God's people. I'll read just, uh, just the first few verses here. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. When I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hands. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. This is a shocking degree of disunity. An absolutely shocking degree of disunity. What happens? How does this come about? Well, you have the, the men of Ephraim. Uh, uh, you have this affront by the men of Ephraim. They cross the Jordan. They come from the west side. They come to the east side. They proceed to berate Jephthah because he didn't bring them in on this war against the Ammonites. At least that's what they say. And they push it a little further, as though that's not enough. They, as you keep reading, they, they taunt him and his men and, and begin to throw out these slurs on their family heritage and history and, and such. And Jephthah responds by, kind of like he did, kind of, kind of like he did with the Ammonites, by trying to set the record straight, you know, dealing with them logically. But here's the difference. He doesn't even wait. He doesn't even wait to see how the arguments land. He responds and attacks. He responds, attacks, presses them back, and then comes up with this really clever um, password protection. The whole thing about the shibboleth and the sibboleth, which makes sense because, you know, even in the English language, we know that you've got certain regional dialects. You know, you go to the north, go to the south, go to the east, or the west. You say this word, this word. We get it. This is not so fanciful, what the, this idea that they came up with. However, that's clever. It's also horrible. As the narrator tells us that as a consequence of, of that and the rest of the battle, 41,000 Ephraimites are now dead on the ground. 
41,000 of their fellow Israelites are now dead on the ground. Shocking degree of disunity, a stunning display of pride. That's what's causing it. A stunning display of pride from both sides. The Ephraimites seem to specialize this. Pride, arrogance, vanity. It seems to be in the water that they drink, in the air that they breathe. We read about something like this with Gideon a couple of chapters ago. Same bunch of people from the same area. But Jephthah's no better. Absolutely no better. His response is so incredibly harsh. His response, when you think about it, is so much harsher against his own people than it was against the enemy Anamonites. Go figure. But that's pointing us towards the brokenness and the folly of tribalism and how we need to be wary of this. So news headline, I saw this uh, some months ago. I checked it, yep, this is it. Indonesia soccer match brawl left up to 125 dead. Similar headlines out of Mexico, similar headlines out of Canada, similar headlines out of France. What the heck? What's going, what's happening? The, the, the common theme in every one of these news stories is you have these rabid fans devoted to their team within the same country. So it's a, these are sports teams in the same country, and they're having at one another. And of course, the outsider's perspective is, that's insane. Well, that's, yeah. So is this. And so is every time we see God's people falling into tribalism. It's insane. It's the roots, it comes out of any and every way that we find our identity and our sense of belonging in anything other than Jesus. In a Jesus plus sense of identity and belonging. The moment we think of ourselves as something extra besides being his followers, we then fall into this tribalism. Yes, Christians. Yes, Christians. Now, for years, some of you are old enough to, to remember and, and, and identify maybe painfully with the reality that, you know, for, for the, as far as tribalism, with the common way tribalism has expressed itself over years and decades has been den denominationalism in and, and a crass and an ugly way that that expresses itself in the way that we oftentimes for years have created caricatures, you know, Presbyterians of Baptists and Baptists of Methodists and Methodists of Episcopalians and, you know, just it goes on and on and on. And we create these caricatures one of another so that we don't have to bother with learning from one another. It's all out of pride. So we dismiss one another. Denominational tribes. But that's, that's not where we are now. That's not where it, oh, it's morphed into something even uglier now. We've gone past dismiss, dismissivism to outright disdain. Read the blogs, the podcasts, listen to the podcasts, look at the websites. The way we have just like gone right in with the rest of the world and, and st 
stoking the fires of suspicion of one another and choking the life out of any sense of the ability of giving charitable judgments. It's tribalism. And for all of our talk of identity and belonging in the course of some of those conversations, ironically, it's coming out of a failure to have our own identity and belonging to Jesus. The hostility has its roots in that very thing. Pointing us again, reminding us again of our brokenness and our need of repair. Every one of us, every single one of us. So is there any hope? I know I'm over time, but I don't really feel like I should dismiss at this point because I haven't left any hope here yet. Is there any hope in this? Is there any light in the midst of this, this, these gray, gray clouds? Where, if so, where, how? There are hints and clues and traces all throughout as you consider who it is that Jephthah is preparing us for, the historical events, what it's preparing us for, what it's pointing us, who it's pointing us towards. Jesus, the ultimate judge, the better judge, the better Jephthah, the better deliverer, the better savior. There are some similarities actually that are worth considering. Both were despised, scorned and despised by their people. That's kind of interesting to, to consider. The similarities, the parallels. And God choosing, God choosing what was weak, right? God choosing the one that no one thought he could possibly use, right? But the contrasts and the differences are all the more stark. And all the more we see how this is pointing us, preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus, there's no foolishness, only faithfulness in him. There is no rashness. There is only, uh, there, there's nothing impulsive in him. There is only purposeful love and faithfulness. There is no vowing to sacrifice another to secure our deliverance and salvation. There is a vowing to sacrifice himself to secure our deliverance and salvation. And when maligned, when reviled, he entrusts himself to his father to do justly. Oh, and one last thing. The peace. Jephthah rules six years. And I can promise you, it wasn't a good six years. The rule and reign of this king, of this judge, of this deliverer, is forever and good. This is the one that we need. This is the one that this horrible account is pointing us towards. Our brokenness pointing us towards our need of his repair. Can we pray? Lord, help us, please, would you help us to see our own deep, deep vulnerabilities. How any of us here can fall prey to the materialism and the syncretism and the tribalism, and we do. Lord, would you be merciful enough to show us these things, but not all at once, we couldn't take it. But incrementally, would you help us to see that we might repent and to look to you, to not look to others and to point fingers, but to look at ourselves and to look at you, as has been so wisely said, for every look at our sin to give 10 to you. Thank you. Thank you that you love us enough to record this for us 
and to satisfy these deep longings of our hearts to be free. We pray in your name. Amen.